0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The volume on the Venezuelan crisis is up. There was lots of verbiage at the U.N. yesterday from Nikki Haley. She said Hugo Chavez's perverse vision of a socialist paradise in Venezuela has transformed into a criminal narco state that's robbing the Venezuelan people blind. Over the weekend, it was revealed in the New York Times that the Trump administration had taken several meetings with Venezuelan coup plotters, and the regional response to the refugee crisis has been changing substantially. We're going to talk about what's going on in Venezuela now with David Smilde from the Washington office on Latin America. He's a senior fellow there and curates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. And with us here in the studio is Andreas Feldman. He's an associate professor in the Latin American and Latino Studies Program and the Department of Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Nice to meet you, Andreas. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could start with the refugee crisis, because I I don't know if it really makes it in the news as big as it is, but if people have seen some of the pictures of people going into Colombia, it's uh, staggering. And the numbers are very large. And the whole region seems to be scrambling to react. Uh, Andreas, could you give us a little thumbnail sketch of what's going on here?
1: Well, as you were saying, I think the region is really scrambling to find a solution. It's, uh, it's being overwhelmed by a very sudden and massive arrival of uh, Venezuelan migrants and refugees. And uh, many countries were ill-prepared for this. I mean, the, the, the numbers are just staggering. 2.3 million Venezuelans and that's probably like a very low number it's probably more than that have left Venezuela you know since uh, the crisis unraveled in, in the sort of mid 2000, And in the last two years, that number has increased dramatically with 1.6 million people leaving Venezuela since 2015. So you might imagine what it means, for instance, for, for neighboring countries like Colombia, receiving in a matter of just a span of a year or something, up to 500 600,000 600, people who need assistance, protection, who need uh, sort of medical care, uh, food, vaccination, what have you. So they are really struggling to sort of cope with this major sort of... Uh, uh, you know, arrival of, of people. And it, they are going to different sort of uh, places. Some are staying in Colombia. But many other countries are also feeling the, the brunt, Brazil, and, yeah. and also like countries further down that uh, south like Peru, Ecuador, Chile, and, and even Argentina.
0: Yeah, I was surprised to see Chile had uh, 120,000 uh, Venezuelans in it. And it's pretty far away. Yeah, it's a five-day uh, bus trip from from Venezuela to Chile. Um, David, can you say something about what the regional response has been so far? Because I, I thought they were on pretty close footing about this, but it seems like that's been breaking up.
2: They've been sort of improvising and putting it together slowly. You know, each country has had its own uh Response: The countries that are part of the Andean community, um, as well as Mercosur, have policies that suggest that Venezuelans can get in with without passports. But some of them have put in passport rules, and some of those countries, the courts have overturned those. And so last week they had a meeting, a regional meeting, and and came together and, and 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 put forward the need to develop some sort of unified identification requirements. Also decided to accept uh expired venezuelan identification documents one of the big problems that people have is that they can't get identification documents they can't get passports to travel but you know the region is, is very sympathetic. there's not a lot of anti Venezuelan at least at the governmental level anti Venezuelan rhetoric uh, in terms of, of these migrants they're, they're quite welcoming. but in terms of the actual actions, I think there leaves a little bit left to desire. Uh, you know last week, they came up with the Quito Declaration, putting forward these ideas, and nowhere in the declaration does it mention the term refugee." you know they completely steer clear of that because they want to come up with very temporary solutions, and you know at most most give these uh, uh, migrants temporary protected status, but they don't want to talk about any kind of path to citizenship. They don't want to use the term refugee because that would imply a whole series of, of new obligations. And so at a certain point, they're going to have to really face up to the crisis and, and come up with a, a, real, a, a realistic and, a, and responsible response.
0: Andreas, what, uh, assess that out a little more for us, because the whole idea of... <laughs> of, you know, people traveling abroad without, um, without their passports, and mm-hmm. Venezuela doesn't allow that, doesn't allow easy passports, and th- this thing is um, uh, an interesting scenario.
1: Well, there's freedom of movement within the, uh, as David was pointing out, within the sort of uh, South American space, uh, and in, in, way, in many ways, the fact that governments are requesting Venezuelans to actually show their passport is, in a way, a hurdle they're putting in order to stem the, the, the flow of people into their countries. Uh, but th- as David was pointing out, I think you know most countries have been trying to accommodate these people to the extent possible. But they are really sort of struggling, and you have to take to, into account that many of these countries are sort of having very sort of uh, severe sort of political economic crises, like Brazil nowadays. Um, even Colombia is in a situation that is really you know it has a new administration. It's trying to sort of uh, you know deal with the newly signed uh, peace uh, treaty with FARC, uh, which has had several sort of challenges or have. Several challenges. So, for them, trying to sort of cater to this population is, is quite difficult. And that's a reason why they don't want to come up with very sort of definite solutions for these people because they don't know exactly how they're going to do it. By doing that, they're sort of really undermining a very sort of critical element, which is uh, refugee protection. Uh, and that's very concerning, very, very disconcerting in, in many ways. Um, in particular, the notion that these people should not be sent back to Venezuela. That's one of the major sort of elements of refugee protection, the notion of non-refoulement. Um, if, some, if some of these people lose their temporary status and are sent back to Venezuela, they might face very like dire consequences. Uh, so that's something that, that is really sort of part of the picture here. Uh, what
0: about the United Nations? Has the UN weighed in on any of this, David, or do they want people to be declared refugees?
2: Well, the UN uh, High Commission on on Refugees has actually been a main actor in this from the very beginning, and yes, they have actually recommended that states uh, follow the Cartagena Accord. And the Cartagena Accord is in 1984. Uh, it tries to expand the notion of what a refugee is. No, the classic idea of a refugee is somebody whose whose human rights are 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 violated and is an imminent threat in their country. But the Cartagena uh, Declaration expands this to anybody who who whose lives are uh, disrupted by internal conflicts or by other circumstances uh, within a country has to be attended to as a refugee. Of course, not all countries have signed on to this. Not, not even all Latin American countries have signed on to this. But you know there. Has has to be a real discussion of this because clearly these are not just economic migrants. I mean, it's right that most of these people are leaving because of economic situations, but the economic situation is what it is because of the lack of democracy, because of the lack of of, of the basic civil and political rights that would allow for governmental change. And so, it's a complicated case. Clearly, these are people that are in dire need. I was at the border last month. Uh, in Colombia, and and there were people that were uh, really uh, coming across and almost collapsing. They had used their last sense to get across, and some of them had no plan for there, and they had kids in tow. There were women on the border that were selling their hair; that would cut the, you know, cut their hair and sell them to people that was uh, that were buying hair there. I mean, people are that desperate coming across, and I think uh, you know, so there's got to be a, a real discussion on on refugee status for for these people.
0: I was surprised to see the number of Venezuelans who 've come to the United states recently it 's uh, almost three hundred thousand people or so, and I imagine these are people who have some means and some connections here but um, Andrea, say the u s might declare them refugees
1: well, you know the asylum applications in the u s have increased dramatically in the last uh, in the last uh, two years uh, actually, Venezuela is now the highest sort of uh, highest, has the highest number of people seeking asylum. In, in the United States, even more than Mexicans or Chinese, which are the second and the third sort of uh, countries of requesting asylum in the U.S. So that, in a way, is telling you the severity of, of the crisis. The shape of this sort of tr- of this uh, wave of migration is different. People coming to the United States are, for the most part, people with greater level of education, are, for the most part, professionals, middle class, uh, families, and therefore have more resources, social, human capital. And oftentimes they, sort of, they have legal representation, which renders they ca- their cases sort of uh, more manageable and, and have better options, actually, even though better options to actually get asylum, even though, you know, the... the <laughs> the road is quite, quite difficult for them to get asylum uh, nowadays in the U.S. Um, but in many ways, I think we have seen a major sort of stream of Venezuelan coming into the United States. That was the early stream that actually left during the early years of the Chavez administration, of the Chavez uh, regime, who came to the United States because they were, for the most part, feeling that you know the government was, was in a way, unwelcoming for, for them. Uh, So this has been a a long sort of type of migration, and it's it's based mostly in Florida.
0: We're talking about the Venezuelan crisis and what to do about some of the refugees there with Andreas Feldman from the University of Illinois at Chicago and David Smilde from the Washington office on Latin America. I wanted to pivot to the U.S. position here because it was interesting to see over the weekend in the New York Times that the U.S. had taken several meetings with coup plotters and it almost seems like the refugee crisis gives the um, some sort of uh, legitimacy to the idea of coup plotting because it's a humanitarian thing. We've got to get the economy back on track. We can meet with these coup plotters. Um, does that change the equation for the U.S.? Um, what do you think, Andreas?
1: Well, I think that in many ways, oftentimes when the U.S. intervenes in the region, it makes matters worse. Uh, unfortunately, so in many ways, the revelations that we saw this weekend on you know this this, uh, this alleged plot to actually uh, the Maduro government is playing into the government's hands in the sense of saying the government in Venezuela has been arguing that the crisis is actually the result of, you know, external intervention. That in reality, the government doesn't have any any responsibility in this. So when these revelations came out, of course, the government is going to be saying, I told you so. This is basically a plot that is sort of undermining our economy, our democracy, and the like. So in a way, that buttresses the the position of, of the Venezuelan government. And therefore, it renders the situation much worse, because it's sort of decreasing the pressure on the Maduro administration to sort of either change, reform, Or it's sort of undermining the position of people within, you know, Chavismo and Madurismo, basically, who are trying to sort of reform and probably trying to get rid of Maduro to try to sort of implement more reasonable policies and sort of steer the the country out of its major crises.
0: Um, David, did you think it was a mistake for the the Trump administration to sit down with folks? And they did it three times. They didn't just do it once, which seems like, you know, and they said that they didn't um, take them up on the offer, but they did it three times, which seems to be like we're listening really closely
2: yeah I mean you can certainly understand their perspective in the sense that it 's very difficult to get intelligence on Venezuela, and you have the opportunity to speak f- to somebody from the military uh, who 's going to talk about discontent within the military to sit down and talk to them and gain valuable information is certainly tempting but on the other side, on the other side, just just sitting down with them sort of a tacit consent for for this kind of uh, military operation and and I should say that you know this didn 't just come out of thin air; this followed. Uh, President Trump's statements back in August 2017 that the U.S. had a military option in in Venezuela it was after that that these coup plotters think, well, we're going to have a sympathetic ear in the United States. And so I think that was sort of the original sin to all of this. Uh, sitting down and listening to them was probably the, uh, a lesser problem. In the end, they didn't end up helping them because they found out what a lot of us knew, and that is that these people don't really have a whole lot. Uh, to say are plans for the country and most likely would not themselves be democratic. They themselves are quite uh, um, uh, questionable figures that, that would be involved in something like this.
0: I was reading in the Washington Post from uh, Francisco Torres who talked about uh, how the Maduro administration is almost coup-proof, and he said that uh, the Venezuelan military officers' corps is probably one of the most intensely spied on bodies in the earth. At Maduro's behest, the government works closely with Cuban intelligence, uh, G2, which has agents embedded in the military, ministries, and agencies trained by the East German Stasi and the KGB. Cuba's G2 uh, carries the torch for a kind of intensive communist surveillance operation that you don't (laughs) see in other places in the world. Uh, Is is the place coup-proof, Andreas. Does that make any
1: sense to you? I don't know if it's coup-proof, but it seems what's keeping Maduro basically in power is basically what you just described, you know, this really awesome and very sort of pervasive uh, network of of Cuban intelligence. I mean, this great dissatisfaction within the Venezuelan armed forces, especially in mid-ranked sort of officers who really think the country's going nowhere, and they are feeling basically the brunt of the crisis themselves. You know, they're having a hard time getting sort of basic uh, sort of services and and products themselves. So again, this uh, this great dissatisfaction, and the Cuban intelligence is for sort of keeping that in, in in check and just trying to prevent any move against the, the Maduro regime. Uh, David, it seems like that the Trump administration is interested in what's happening in
0: Venezuela. Um, what does that mean? Does that, how do you see that road going?
2: well i think you know the u s is interested in venezuela among other things i mean i think uh... you know it's not at the top of its list but clearly you know it's a situation in the region that that provides some degree of instability i think for the most part this is driven by the uh... the sort of anti-castro legislative uh, coalition or segment that comes from South Florida, and most particularly Marco Rubio is somebody that has has a really big voice has trump 's ear, and has a really big voice in foreign policy and he 's the one that puts this on the agenda continually in in within the administration i don 't think other in other areas that they care too much about this. I think you know th- the United States really should not be the main actor here. I think what really needs to happen, you know, there's there's plenty of, of sanctions going on, there's pressure on the regime. I think what has to happen now is that there needs to be more diplomatic initiatives. And I think the be better, not coming from the United States, but from other actors in the region, European actors, you know, there's a new government in Spain, there's going to be a new government in Mexico, you know, actors that can put together some sort of group of friends, and I'm not a group of allies, but a group of friends that could put together some sort of peace plan, perhaps do some shuttle diplomacy, bringing in the opposition, bringing in the government, and try to forge some sort of agreement that would be interesting to both sides. But I think, again, the key to this is that, it, is that I think it's got to come from outside of the United States. The United States, is, especially with this president, is simply not an effective actor within Venezuela.
0: David Smiley is from the Washington office on Latin America, and he curates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. And Andreas Feldman is from the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he's a professor in the Latin American and Latino studies program in the Department of Political Science. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation in Venezuela. Thank you. Thank you. you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with a, a person from Honduras. He's a representative of the National Center for Rural Workers. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're going to talk about Honduras, specifically what rural people do and how rural people organize in Honduras. With us is a special guest, Carlos Porfirio Armijo, and he's the National Secretary for Education and Training, and he's part of the National Board with the National Center for Rural Workers, known by its acronym CNTC. CNTC. It's 11,000 families together trying to better themselves and work on the land in Honduras, and they've attracted a lot of attention of the authorities. There are 2,400 members who are targeted by criminal charges related to their agrarian movement, and it is good to have you with us.
3: Carlos, thank you for joining us. Bueno, agradezco la oportunidad a la Radio de Poder Eh, contar un poco de la experiencia y la situación que nuestra organización ha venido viviendo y sigue viviendo.
4: So I want to thank the radio station for the opportunity to be able to be here and to tell a little bit about the situation that our organization has been living through.
0: Explain a little about the history of the organization and the philosophy. I think a lot of people would be interested to know uh, what you're up against.
3: Mm-hmm. Bueno, nuestra organización nació con el propósito y el fin de luchar para mejorar las condiciones de vida de las familias de la área rural.
4: So, our organization was born in order to fight for families to be able to improve their lives, and particularly families from the rural areas where they're confronting this injustice of lack of access to land and to the common resources that belong to each and every one of us. And we're confronting a ton of difficulties because what the government's doing is they're giving concessions away for the common goods that belong to all of us, and they're doing it just so they can make a lot of money for them at our expense.
3: Hacer mucho dinero y sin importarles la el humano.
0: Uh Are you talking about mining interests and
3: extraction industries and the like? Exacto, sí. Minería, sí, la extracción, el extractivismo que que hace el gobierno a través de transnacionales extranjeras para empobrecer a a las poblaciones y prácticamente solo los dejan las enfermedades.
4: Yeah, exactly. The mining interests, the extraction interests in order to benefit transnational corporations, impoverishing the people. And the only thing they leave to us is diseases. Because a lot of times that work, it's not even well-paid work. It's poorly paid work and without any of the labor rights that should belong to the workers.
0: What is the strategy to get families places and places on the land
3: and a place to work? Mm -hmm. Bueno, eh, no tenemos muchas... eh, por decir algo por parte del Estado eh, líneas o, o, o leyes que nos favorezcan es por eso que surge la necesidad de primor organizarnos voluntariamente. So- There
4: doesn't exist, from the state's end, many laws that really favor us. And so that's why we have the need for us to organize ourselves voluntarily amongst the people. And First, we scope things out or do a study of the lands that are there. And then from there, we move towards recovering those lands for ourselves. So it costs us a lot to do that. We have that huge number of people who've been prosecuted, tons of people who've been jailed. And in our history of the struggle for a piece of land, we've had over 200 of our brothers and sisters killed.
0: Are you coming into conflict with big landowners? I always hear that in Honduras the land is controlled by a dozen families or so. Is that part of the problem here, that they're controlling the land, and if people want to go and find a small piece of it somewhere, they're going to come in conflict with the big
3: landowners? Claro, así es. O sea, nos enfrentamos con 14,000 familias, que son las que tienen el control Son los que quitan y ponen presidentes en nuestro país. Muchas veces no respetan...
4: So that's exactly it. We're up against those 14 families, and those are the 14 families. They put in presidents, they take out presidents. They don't respect the votes of the people, like is the current case with the person that has been imposed on us through force, a guy that we call Ho for his initials, J-O-H, Juan Orlando Hernandez. So that's why every day it gets harder and harder for us to access a piece of land for us to work. It's the Congress, it's the ministers, the government. They're creating all kinds of laws that criminalize our struggle to try to create obstacles for us being able to fight and for us to be able to uh, carry out that fight in a way that might be calmer. Instead, they try to sow fear amongst us, and that's exactly the message
3: they send when they send people to jail. Is this
0: a little like what happens in Brazil with the landless movement, the MST, where uh, they have some... Constitutional guarantees that they can stay on the land if the land is idle and isn't being worked. That people can start their own thing, and they've had a struggle,
3: but they've been able to have the law on their side. Sí, es igual. Eh, eh, tenemos una ley de, de reforma agraria, pero prácticamente en un gobierno fue cambiada por una ley de modernización agrícola que en, en ese tiempo no nos permitían la gente que tenía tierra.
4: Yeah, it's the exact same thing. So we have an agrarian reform law, but then what happened is they replaced that with what's called the law for agrarian modernization. Um, It was actually something that was passed by Callejas when he was president. He's now here in the United States in jail. And that law uh, for agrarian modernization, as they said, before... You weren't able to sell your land, but then they allowed financing so that the banks could come in and finance and buy up and get a hold of the land.
3: Por ejemplo, el señor Callejas tuvo como 50 actos de corrupción bien justificados. So Mr.
4: Callejas was accused of over fifty different acts of corruption during his administration. Of course the courts let him free, scotch free, but now he's in jail not for those corruption, but now for a scandal around FIFA. Uh, and so that's not his original acts of corruption, but like we say, eventually you end up having to pay the consequences for your actions.
0: Well the people who are targeted in your organization now, there's twenty four hundred members who are targeted by some kind of criminal charges? What's happening with them? Do they have a, a leg to stand on legally?
3: No, practically no tienen amparo legal por el Estado. Eh, es triste porque los compañeros a veces han un poco retirados los jugados donde van a firmar
4: no, there's really no legal standing for them, no legs to stand on, so to speak. It's really sad. They have to travel really far in a lot of cases to go week after week to the courts and to sign in, and uh, we don't have anything to back them up except for the solidarity, both at the national and international level, to help.
0: Will they eventually get evicted from where they're at?
3: Sí, hay desalojos...
4: Yeah, so there's a number of evictions happening all the time that have already been ordered. Sometimes we're able to stop these evictions and get injunctions. Usually that's through pressure, solidarity, both regionally, national, internationally. But other times the evictions go forward, and when they happen, they're very violent. They come in, they destroy the homes, they burn down the crops, and they leave people in a state of just complete misery.
3: What happens
0: to those people?
3: Bueno, ellos eh la policía se queda ahí por un par de días, ahí cuidando, porque los terratenientes les pagan para hacer eso. Pero una vez que se vuelven ahí la gente por la gran necesidad so
4: what happens after the evictions the police they stay there for a few days watching the land because the landowners themselves pay them to do that pay them off but as soon as the police leave the people because they have that need because they understand the importance of a piece of land and because they're brave they come back and they retake the land uh, some people do pull out of the struggle but other people they last they stay on dedicated and those are the people that end up getting themselves a piece of land not always legally but always exercising their rights. And it's a really conflictive situation for both the CNTC and other organizations. A lot of times these are lands that are held by narcos, by drug traffickers, or other times they're lands that they're trying to use for what they're calling these charter cities, which is a policy of the current government that we basically see as selling off our country piece by
3: piece. Tell us more about the charter cities. Ajá. Eh, cuando empezó le llamaban ciudades modelos. Hubo una revuelta del pueblo en contra de eso y le cambiaron la idea de que hay ahora eh, ciudades, regiones especiales de desarrollo, con la idea de que a ver si la gente...
4: So, these charter cities, they initially called them charter cities, and then there was so much revolt against the idea uh, that they changed the name and they called them special development regions to try to put it in people's heads that, oh, this is going to be a place you can get a job or opportunity. But really, it's still the same thing. And basically, what it is, it's something that's really affecting us as the CNTC and some of the regions we're at, like Choluteca and Trujillo, uh, where, for example, they'll take a thousand square kilometers of land and they'll say, This land has its own government and its own governance, and basically it's like a state within a state. And so they say that there's four of these special development regions around the country. And what happens is when they declare one, the people who are living there currently are all displaced. Uh, The jobs that are present for people that want to be there are basically slave-like conditions of labor. And people who are low-income people, they're not even going to get even a business opportunity within these special development zones because it's really foreign corporations that are ones that are coming in and controlling
3: it.
0: I'm talking about Honduras with Carlos Porfirio Armijo. He's part of the National Board with the National Center for Rural Workers and there are 11,000 families strong. Uh, They have 2,400 members who are targeted by criminal charges right now. Um, I wanted to say something about Surveillance on your organization. Um, what kind of surveillance does the government do in your
3: group? Ajá. Bueno, eh, nos tienen vigilado, pues. O sea, ese esos grupos militares que ha creado el gobierno con el propósito de re, reprimir nuestras acciones. So they are surveilling us constantly. The
4: government has created these military groups with the specific purpose of repressing us, and they've even passed a law, they call it the the listening law, where they're allowed to intervene in and listen to our phones to hear our conversations, what our plans are against them, and to recover land. And we believe that this is a violation of our rights. You know, it's your own right to privacy, to be able to talk about your problems with somebody. But that's not how they look at it. And they are especially surveilling the leaders who are motivating the struggle. And sometimes they even go to the point of sending threats to their phones to try to intimidate them. If the threats don't work, then they will try to jail you and at the end killing you. So, and this is not just with uh, the peasant movement. It's also things that happen to human rights defenders, to students, even to journalists. The journalists who are committed and who are denouncing the human rights violations against other people who are committed and struggling for a more just society.
3: Estamos eh, comprometidos y obligados a luchar para para tener una una sociedad más justa.
0: I understand a lot of members of the National Center for Rural Workers have been uh, assassinated over the
3: years. Could you give us some idea of what those circumstances are like? Mm-hmm. Bueno, eh, muchos compañeros han sido asesinados en el proceso de recuperación. En los desalojos violentos han matado muchos compañeros. Eh, líderes y dirigentes que andan
4: So, there's been many people, sisters and brothers, assassinated during these processes of recovering land. Oftentimes, it happens during the violent evictions. Uh, Oftentimes, the people they're killing are the leaders who are leading the fight to try to recover the land. And from 1985, when we were founded as an organization until now, uh, those 200 people who have died, every one of them died in the struggle for the right to work the land. So, many of these people who've been killed, they're not well-known cases, and we haven't made them. Well known because sometimes, unfortunately, there's people that try to take advantage of that and even make money off of that, and that really hurts people's morale. And we don't want their deaths to be in vain in that
3: way. What do you want
0: people listening to this program to take away from this? What should they do about the situation in Honduras that is
3: facing rural workers? Ah, bueno, pienso que Si les conmueve lo que estamos diciendo, necesitamos mucho apoyo solidario, mucha gente que se incorpore a, de alguna manera... So I think that
4: if you're listening and you're moved, what we need is support. We need solidarity. We need you to contribute to the effort to try to soften these harsh laws and these persecution used against us. And we need you to know that a lot of times it's your taxes for people living in the United States. Your tax dollars are being sent to Honduras, and they're being sent there in order to create more military and have more soldiers there to kill people who are opposing their plans and their cruelty. And I say that because our country is supported by the United States states they're supported and these laws that are there to protect the crimes of the rich people to persecute meanwhile those of us who are struggling for a better life struggling for our human rights you know in society humans are supposed to be first in our country humans come last they come last after money they come last after greed they come last after military and what's left because we're left last is
3: hunger is thirst is disease is suffering nos, nos preguntamos decimos muchas veces por qué los Estados Unidos país como We often
4: ask ourselves why the United States, a country with so much power, with so much economic power and richness Why aren't they supporting education? Why aren't they supporting health care and jobs, housing? And instead, why are they strengthening criminals, these militaries who are killing our people? And this isn't just even in our country. This is around the world. Why aren't they supporting humanity? Why aren't they supporting us to resolve social problems?
0: Do you feel any solidarity with the movements that are fighting inequality right now around the world? There seems to be a lot of discussion about inequality and uh, within our country and, and inside
3: other countries
0: do these things come together in your mind?
3: Sí, claro que sí, por ejemplo, aquí eh, los de la voz de los de abajo ha sido ah uh, durante muchos años ah uh, como organización como CNTC nos han apoyado mucho solidariamente. Han ido a los campos de so, yes,
4: of course. You know, for example, here we've really felt solidarity from La Voz de los Debajo who for years has been a sister organization supporting the CNTC. They've been down there. They've been on the front lines with us. They've seen the wounded. They've seen our dead. They've seen the housing that gets destroyed during these evictions. So we really felt that spirit of solidarity from them and others.
3: Sí, sí, sí creemos. Y vemos que también aquí hay mucha injusticia también.
4: So, yeah, and we see that here, too, there's a lot of injustice. In fact, just yesterday, I was able to go to a protest here in Chicago, and they were talking about how the mayor here has closed over 50 schools, how he closed mental health clinics, and it compares. That's parallel to the injustices that we see in our country. Maybe the struggles are different. Maybe they don't happen exactly the same way, but they're about the same reason, which is the exploitation of people with less resources, the exploitation of people based on their class, based on their race, seeing that there's still some much
3: racism.
0: Thanks very much to Matt ginsburg jakel who's been interpreting with us and is a member with the Chicago-based human rights group that we just mentioned, La Voz de los de Abajo. And thanks very much to Carlos Porfirio Armijo, a board member with the National Center for Rural Workers in Honduras, for telling us about what's going on with rural people in Honduras. Thank you very much.
3: Bueno, agradecer la oportunidad. este espacio que me han permitido de poder contar nuestra situación y si no fuera por los compañeros
4: So I really want to thank you for presenting us this opportunity, for giving me the space to talk about our struggle in our organization. And also want to thank la voz de los de abajo who if it weren't for them and the universities, they made possible me being able to be here in Chicago and in the United States for the first time.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll have our regular segment, Global Notes, where we look at international music and we will stay in the hemisphere and talk about indigenous music in this hemisphere. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And that international music is from Honduras and Aurelio Martinez. And with us is Catalina Maria Johnson, host and producer of Beat Latino on Vocalo, music journalist. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome.
5: Great to be back again.
0: This is wonderful music uh, from Aurelio Martinez. And his Honduran story is... um, in, in typical of not just Honduras, but uh, a regional story,
5: it's regional, but it's it's very unique. Uh, Aurelio is a member of the Garifuna people, and that's been actually named by the UNESCO. the, the language, the music, the dance of the Garifuna are intangible heritage so um, they're a fascinating people because they're of African and first Nations origin. they are the descendants of shipwrecked enslaved persons, very proud to be always free and black in the Americas, shipwreck that mixed with the uh, First Nations peoples and then got spread out, you know, due to the forces of colonialism, got spread out over Belize and Honduras. Um, and there's... A, so there's English, Spanish, and their own language, Garifuna. And this song is in Garifuna, and you spoke uh, with uh, about Honduras earlier so i thought it would be nice to start this segment of languages that are disappearing fading and musical efforts to keep them alive or at least remind people and preserve the culture if not the language
0: and the garifuna language um is one that um is fading too and El Rulio Martinez is a champion of this now he's he's also been a legislator in honduras right. <laughs> he's a political you know he's really trying to get out there with politics with music and 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 do his people proud?
5: Right, right. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's, I think, less than two hundred thousand speakers right now, and and it's fading fast. So um, the music kind of keeps it in the foreground. And there's other garifuna musicians, but Aurelio is right at the forefront of those that are keeping it alive.
0: Well, um, let's move along and ca- and go up to Canada for a, a terrific story. And I don't, I've never heard of. Jeremy Dutcher before, but you have seen him live, and his story is pretty amazing.
5: Yeah, he uh, he's a tenor, an opera-trained uh, musician, and he it, he comes from the Tobique First Nation in Canada, and he's one of seven Wollast communities, and there's less than 100 speakers of the language, primarily elders. And he ran across these really archival recordings of ancient songs in Wolastoke. Uh,
0: and they were on wax cylinders in a, in a museum. <laughs> uh, it's it's amazing.
5: And he uh, he realized that he needed to bring these again to the foreground, and if not, have. Sp- Speakers of the language, learning the language, if not reviving it, at least keep it alive in the music and through the songs. And he transcribed, it's very meticulously, the, uh, the recordings. And then he created, it's a, again kind of in a genre of, of its own, but I would say almost operatic air arias that build and go in and out of the sampling of those original songs. It's so beautiful.
0: That's Jeremy Duscher, a classically trained operatic tenor and composer who blends uh, his classical training with his Wollastook First Nation roots and to amazing effect. I couldn't stop listening to his recording on the Internet. It's it's really amazing.
5: It's just amazing breathtakingly beautiful and live I saw him perform live at the uh, Folk Alliance Conference in February and he it was just him and his keyboard and then of course a computer for the sampling and uh, yeah I think a lot of people are realizing that it's an amazing amazing recording and he's actually nominated for the Polaris which is a hugely important uh, prize in Canada for the best album of 2018 and that will be announced next week so <laughs> I'm crossing my fingers
0: and th- this is a you know we're hearing a wax cylinder recorded between 1907 and 1913 there, and there were songs that no one else of the hundred Woola speakers still left uh, were knew about. They 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 didn't know the songs, and he really revived them and um, is trying to put them out there in the world in this whole new way. And he's got a very um, you know. A thoughtful way of doing this he's talking about um, how he doesn't want these things on wax cylinders collecting dust on a museum shelf I was uh, I want to go out there and put them with the people I want to you know change the whole thing his album cover is really interesting it's him in front of a, an Edison cylinder and it's he took it from another uh, an indigenous person who was recording on the Edison cylinders. A picture that uh, he he kind of frames, and you go on his Facebook page. He talks all about breaking it down and yeah, making you know trying to put it out there in a new way and take ownership of this thing that was some kind of museum piece.
5: Yeah, yeah, and keeping it alive. If if nothing else, keeping it alive in the songs.
0: Um we've got more songs right. as we talk about uh, <laughs> in, indigenous new indigenous music that's out there. Uh, what's next?
5: Well, this is uh Watemaya and it's a uh, from Guatemala and it was uh, it's an album created by one of the first uh, and founding members of the first rap group in Mayan, who now in this project is Dr Nativo. but he's got the one of the rappers from that uh, original group, Tsutu Khan, rapping in three. Mayan languages, there are six I've learned in the background.
1: <speaking> in <Spanish> waqti buqa ba igono fet malak ta qina qiyo cocini cucito
3: chic chatbe no marking cocini cucashik yeah. unka inu tircheway lu <laughs> min cronoger nuta alirwanu kush ki mato shircheway sutircheyag cuye madroche kutchu twech diqa yak diqa ka diqa kam taqar
0: that's Dr nativo and I'm here with Catalina Maria Johnson talking about indigenous music and we are hearing four Mayan languages three three, uh, three,
5: three. yeah and one of them is uh, like a proto Maya that was spoken that was spoken in the classical Mayan epoch yeah. so uh, there are more speakers of the languages I've read somewhere in the in the millions maybe six million so this is more of it not just fading but Six million is a lot of speakers, but I, I think keeping the culture and the pride, you know, and in this song takes Guatemala from Guatemala, you know, to kind of put to the foreground again, the native uh, indigenous First Nations roots of the land.
0: And I was reading that Dr. Nativo's father, who was Arturo Martinez, was assassinated along with some of his uh, friends during uh, Arturo during Dr. Nativo's childhood. Yeah. yeah, and so he comes from a place that is uh, remembers the Civil War and once seeks social justice and, and a change in the situation.
5: Indeed, indeed. And he, I think, sees the um, kind of recuperation. Of, he went through like a Mayan spiritual um I don't know what you would call it, epiphany and transformation. And he sees that as a big part of achieving social justice, the recognition of the power of that culture and its roots in Guatemala.
0: And somewhere along the way, he picked up some kind of reggae elements <laughs> and worked that in.
5: Well, you don't realize how close that is all to the Caribbean. So that that's always like in the background.
0: There we go. Dr. Nativo and um, his... Uh, his newest music uh, they 're coming up, uh, yeah coming up in uh, our final uh, song today
5: this is a a, a language that 's close to my heart um, because it 's actually judeo iberian or ladino, and there 's at this point no monolingual competent speakers, uh some elders, but it 's no longer a It it really is a language on the verge of extinction. And there are musicians of Sephardic background, like the one we're going to hear, Sara Aroeste. She's even created for her own children, um, children's songs in Ladino. She's trying to create music in Ladino, as well as keeping the traditional songs alive. And this is a, a language that was taken with the Iberian Jews when they were expulsed from Spain in what 1492 right and they took it to turkey and israel and so it's a it's medieval spanish plus all those other elements of the diaspora it's a beautiful language and this is buena semana is what we're going to hear
0: Buena Semana, and the artist is Sarah Oreste. some beautiful Landino language as we wrap up our segment on threatened indigenous languages around the Americas. Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks a lot for joining us for an outstanding Global Notes.
5: Thank you, thank you. It's uh, great to share this music, music that matters, you know, music that's really pointing out um, the power of certain cultural roots. It's great to be here.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with a Dutch researcher who visited Chicago to learn about racism and segregation in our housing. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.